Alright friends, how's it going? Zig coming in at the top of the interview. Today I have with me Glenn Morrow. Glenn is a Hoboken music legend. He basically started the Hoboken music scene. He played in a band called Individuals, and then his next project was called Rage to Live. And after Rage to Live, he started a record label called Bar None Records. And his current project is Cry for Help. And Cry for Help 2, the second album, is coming out soon. We're going to hear a track from that in a little bit. Before we get into that, this was a really cool interview. Talking with someone who was in the scene, hanging out with the Ramones. Like the CBGB scene, he's bouncing in between that and took a piece of that to Hoboken and made it its own thing, which is what the Ramones did. They went all around planting these seeds of punk. And Glenn, I think, is an example of that. And throughout the interview, there's this narrative. It was unintentional. It was just kind of going with the flow conversation, but it all kind of is based around the idea of this art gallery his mother started and how his career kind of took this weird art gallery turn. And it was really cool to unintentionally weave this narrative and made some sense. So we're going to play a track from Cry From Help. Here's the tune Forever in a Day. friends we're going to get into it but before that if you could like subscribe rate review comment share the podcast and all the podcasting platforms we're just 
added new to YouTube. So if you can hit that subscribe button and that bell notification, it helps me keep doing these interviews and sharing the insight with you. And this podcast is mixed by Studio 44. If you have any audio needs, hit up Studio 44, Studio 44 Cleveland. Studio 44. So without further ado, Glenn Morrow. Yeah. Now, all right, perfect. Well, then we're good to go if you're good to go. I'm ready. All right. Well, we're doing the Zig at the Gig podcast. I'm hanging out with Glenn Morrow. Um, and we're going to jump right into it, man. Uh, I had a question. Now, when you started doing music, or, or, or maybe I should put it like this. Uh, in your family, your mother was an artist, right? She owned an art gallery in Hoboken. Uh, not in Hoboken, but okay. in uh, uh, Caldwell, I guess, or up near Verona Park and on the border of Verona and Caldwell. Okay. It, it and then Montclair. Actually, it moved to Montclair, the backdoor art gallery. The thought, is it, was it like a local thing, or was it people that, like, <clears throat> like was it she a... Was, it was, it was uh, I, would, I would say it was fairly serious, you know, they... I mean, it was, I guess, regional artists, but, you know, it was uh, definitely, uh, yeah, more than just, say, the, the artists of the town. They were, they were pulling from a fair wide orbit. That's awesome. Was it, I work at an art gallery, and uh, it's so is the media, was it all painting, or was it just an open medium where it could be anything? Uh, I mean, it tended to be around the idea of painting, Actually, uh, it's funny. Uh, maybe ten years ago, I was in New York City at like just sort of a, a outdoor flea market, and I saw these etchings, and I'm like, "Oh my God, those are Jack Bylanders!" <laughs> and uh, you know, I could just recognize the guy's style. And Jack Bylander was a guy that. Uh, my mom had had shows by, and these, these looked like they were just sort of like the remnants of, you know, sort of wow. the outtakes lying there on this table with Jack Bylander. We had like some framed paintings of his, <clears throat> and he actually did some illustrations for, uh, I found out later, this one illustration we had of these kids kind of climbing on a chain link fence was from, um, what's that famous <laughs> kid's book about like, young teenagers running wild in uh, like uh, Oklahoma or something. Hmm. It was made, uh, Coppola made a movie out of it. Oh, the outsiders. The outsiders. Yeah. Oh, it was okay. like, yeah. Wow. So anyway, wow. that's a random story. I yeah. haven't, I, I haven't told it. <laughs> <laughs> well, growing up around art like that and just being around people that are creative, I can imagine that's what inspired you to, pick up music or was that was music involved somewhere did your dad do you know music? my my family wasn't that music wasn't that big a thing in my family and i was the oldest kid so you know other than having uh like you know whipped cream and other delights and a few <laughs> random records around the house some sinatra records uh and i had to kind of discover that on my own through am radio and uh, sort of slowly becoming aware of the Beatles, you know, yeah. not like everybody else. I mean, I was aware of them in like 1964, but I didn't really, you know, totally buy in until about 1968. Yeah, it's different from 
like passively observing and like just intaking, but then actively like dissecting yeah. and like appreciating any form yeah. of whatever. Okay. But then I, I got very obsessive about music, and then my siblings all sort of followed, and uh, yeah, all they all play instruments and see a lot. My, my brother, I think, sees more live music than I do at this point. My sister's got a jazz band. My other sister has a has a rock band. Wow! <laughs> you know, to this day, we're all. And uh, actually, we learned through Ancestry dot com that my grandmother was from Bohemia, and Bohemia has a lot of musicians. So, wow, uh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so funny when you like I don't know the nuclear family. You look at mom and dad, and usually it's like, well, dad like this, and so I got into that. Or but when it's kind of the the you know the next generation that jumped into it seems yeah. Like, all your siblings are fully immersed in it to some degree. So that's yeah, it's awesome. funny. I meet a lot of young people who like, you know, like all the, you know, 70s music that their parents turned them on to, you know. It's, and it, that always sort of throws me because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't at it. Now I listen to, yeah, I, you know, I listen to a lot of jazz and, and a lot of stuff that was maybe sort of in the background. Yeah. My father actually had all these 78s jammed in the closet, but he, that he never took out. So, you know, he'd listen to a lot of music, but not around us. You know, he sort of put that behind him, I guess. Huh. Quite literally. And then my mom that. sort of embraced the music, you know, she embraced the music of, that we were listening to, you know, Beatles and Stevie Wonder or, you know, whatever was in the air. That's awesome. It's interesting. Moms always seem to, to be hip. <laughs> Dad's got the record, the Coltrane records put away, but mom's got the, she's got the new thing you're into. <laughs> yeah, she, she didn't like uh, Lou Reed when I'd come home on, from, for lunch from in high school and, and put on Lou Reed Berlin. That kind of freaked her out a little, I think. But. <laughs> There's got to be a line, but <laughs> Lou Reed would be probably a good line for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <cut> <laughs> Wow, um, that's a. It's interesting that your dad literally just kind of put it away. Um, so, with some of those records that are appealing to you now, like what kind of jazz are you digging into? Um, yeah, well, I've since you know found out that my parents used to go down to uh, when they were you know, when they were young, they would go down to Fifty Ninth Street and you know see people playing there. My dad liked Eartha Kitt. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, just like just getting into all the culture and Miles Davis, uh, you know, variations on, on on that kind of stuff. Was it with that, um, that alone? You can that can be it. Those yeah, guys yeah. It, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot to absorb there. Yeah, with their careers uh, and just how they're spread, and then it goes into Monk and Parker and yeah, Mon- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of that kind of stuff, and and some new stuff. Actually, I was just watching. There's this show that I kind of I don't think anybody knows about this show. It's on. Uh, let me see, because I might be in my Spotify here. The Shay is that what it's called? S H A Y. You ever hear of that? No, I haven't. Um, not the is it an interview just, show or a? No, no, it's a it's a it's a 
what do you call it? Like a, it's not the Shay. <laughs> um, it's a show about uh, jazz in Paris. It just follows this crew around as they attempt to run a club and kind of fight with gangsters and try to make an album at the same time. Huh. Um, it was the last thing I listened to last night, so should be here. I was going to say, that'd be interesting uh, perspective, because you kind of hear from the jazz guys when they go to Paris, and it's like, oh, it's the best thing ever. We're treated like royalty over there, but you never kind of right. hear about the, the crew there putting together yeah. the show. <laughs> yeah, sort of a, an international, oh, the Eddie, the E-D-D-Y. Eddie. Oh, okay. The Eddie. And there's a playlist on Spotify, which, and it, it, it's sort of like pop jazz, like, uh, you know, yeah, uh, they, they have like real songs with, uh, you know, lyrics and stuff, but, uh, you know, really good players. And it's just kind of an interesting premise. No, that sounds, that sounds cool. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever watched, you know, who cares about this show. Well, but, we're going to spread the word here. Yeah. <laughs> I get, I get like the Eddie E-D-D-Y. E-D-D-Y. Okay. Yeah, I don't know with jazz. Like when it gets to like trying to figure out standards for me, like when when you have the the, the take with the vocalist, that's what sticks in my head the most. Because um, just like you're saying, there's a thousand versions of um, all you are, or whatever, or all yeah, uh, yeah, favorite things and uh, whatever. But there's not the one that to me that sticks in the is with the lyrics, and then you hear it in each melody, and you hear everyone's own variations on it. Yeah, we uh, we actually saw some. Uh, I, I live actually up in uh, in Harlem now, and we went out the other day, and oh, there wow. was a bunch of folks, uh, sort of you know playing outside. Yeah, and there's some really like this one woman was just incredible, and I thought she's kind of be like some kind of theater person. And sure enough, she'd been on like some TV shows, and uh, she was super. Just a tiny thing, and yet she—I mean, she was like singing opera and blues and gospel, all within like a like a little, you know, four-song set. I mean, she, <laughs> her, you know, she was yeah. improvising. Uh, sometimes it almost was like you know. Sometimes it sounded like jazz sketching. Sometimes it was like speaking in tongues. And then she just got in a car and yeah. drove off. And uh, yeah, her name is uh, bon- Boncella Lewis. And I was just like, oh, my God. And, and you, there's video and stuff you can find on her. But she doesn't seem to even have any records. So I'm kind of curious doing, about that. Doing some drive And she was in, like, you know, back in the 90s, she was in, like, shows like, you know, Bubbling Brown Sugar and Ain't Misbehave. And I, did, <laughs> I kept doing all this yeah. research online to try to figure out who was that woman. <laughs> She's got the creds. Yeah, oh, man. That's that's. I guess that's what kind of cool about our the climate we're in now is random things like that can happen, and it's not like yeah, it's maybe even more appreciated than when it would have. You know, if it happened before, everyone would be like, oh, right. someone singing. But like now that we can't really, I don't know. I don't know what the lockdown or what uh the shutdown looks around at for you, but in Cleveland, it's not too bad. Um, but you really we can't do anything like that, and <laughs> like. So well, know. yeah, I mean, you know, we walk around and, and we stumble on stuff like that. Uh, my guitar player, his son, actually has a sort of ad, like, 
puts these sort of on the fly jazz bands together just pop up you know yeah in the city and you get like a text on instagram or, or you look in the story on instagram it's like we're gonna be here at two o'clock in front of this restaurant and you know some, sometimes it'll be like a guy that you know plays with um <laughs> what's his name harry connick or something wow you know and sometimes yeah. it's just juilliard students but you know they're all they're all pretty good and they're all improvising on like you know the uh, you know all all the songs from the fake book, and, and you're just like, yeah, this is not. This is pretty good for just on the street. So yeah, that's it. That's what's cool about I don't know technology. I went down a rabbit hole with Mike Watt about it, but like you can throw that message out there and then have a band. You know what I mean? Like and have an yeah. audience, and like uh, which had to be a big twist from like. Yeah, they're making money too. Like people are just walking by, throwing you know, throwing twenties in the in the bass drum case, you know. So where is this at? Just like you know, it could be anywhere on like Columbus Avenue in the city. You know, they just sort of wander around. Well, um, and that was your guitar player's son. Yeah. What? So yeah, he's a drummer. Oh, okay, he's a drummer. Got it. So he's a wanted commodity. Everyone needs a drummer. Everyone I guess just, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, someone has to lug the drum kit to the gig, right? Evan Evan Sherman is his name, Rick Sherman. Gotcha. Uh, the guitar player. So Glenn uh, Morrow's cry for help. Which is a great band, and I want to get into that. Um, but what brought you to the guitar, kind of bouncing off that idea? Like, when did guitar become your main? Was it when you guys... Well, my, my sister was... Yeah, my sister was a really good piano player, you know, okay. classical, and, and that just seemed very intimidating. And there was a nylon string acoustic guitar kind of kicking around the house. And I, uh, the Newark Evening News had the chords to, I think, uh, Helpless by Neil Young and uh, All Right Now by Free, which is that's a solid, know, not solid a lot of chords. <laughs> yeah, there's three chords between the two songs. But they make so, those three chords sound sweet. It, yeah, yeah. So that, those, you know, I, I was very, I sort of almost, I learned those chords and a few others and then just started writing songs. But not really until I got to college. And, and then that also coincided with, you know, the whole CBGB's thing was happening. I, I was up in Rhode Island, but I was like reading the papers. And just that idea that, you know, you could kind of, you know, sort of the early ideas of punk rock that, you didn't have to be a trained musician to, you know, be a musician. You could kind of, I don't know, there was another path. And, you know, listening to the Ramones and, um, or, the, or the philosophy, you know, Eno's yeah. records were out. And, you know, that hadn't all sort of come together yet. But, um, yeah, sort of that, seeing, seeing a picture of Jonathan Richmond and just knowing something about that made sense <laughs> um that i don't know that is, and yeah and then going to cbgb's and seeing like talking heads as a trio and learning to play sick. love goes to a building on fire which again is only i think three chords maybe four well it doesn't um, take a lot to say it you know it doesn't take a lot uh, you can do a little with a lot so yeah <laughs> yeah who did you ever run into the Ramones and stuff around that time, or was oh this, yeah, 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 yeah. So that you know, 
Yeah, you so yeah, cool. CBGBs, they were, everybody was just all around, you know, you'd go to the urinal and there'd be Joey at the next urinal. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, I, I attempted to book talking heads early on at, at RISD, the school they went to, but the, 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 uh, the head of the department there that was in charge of entertainment wasn't buying it, even though I had pictures of them with Andy Warhol and, <laughs> I said, but you had the Paul Winter concert, and he's like, that—that that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, man, that's—that's be a weird, like, I don't know, the, a different mentality. I'm sure that would be a different scenario booking something like that now, but like, just it, the the be all. Yeah, I mean, they had like barely that. left. C, you know, they'd only really played CBGBs at that point. There was, whereas I just, I just saw some Richard. Uh, Ivan, there's a documentary about Ivan Julian from the Voidoids, and yeah. Richard Hill said, we're just going to play punk clubs. And Ivan was like, unfortunately, there was only like, you know, <laughs> two punk clubs at that point, so we didn't, you know, there was nowhere to play. Two gigs a night, maybe. <laughs> uh, two gigs a weekend, maybe. maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the draw is going to maybe whittle out, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though, just to be around that and like to be around art again, you know, going from home kind of to immersing yourself in this. Yeah. Yeah. It was. um, Yeah. Yeah. Art was certainly always around. I mean, I was a photographer early on. Is that what you went Uh, to college for? What did you go to college for? uh, You know, I thought I would get into advertising. Yeah. But uh, various things conspired against me and I ended up as a journalism major, just almost by default. And then <clears throat> actually I transferred to NYU and, uh, yeah, like, so Chris Damie, I saw him in the hallway there one day and, you know, I basically wanted to hang out at CBG. <laughs> so, um, where I got my, you know, I feel like that's where I got my real education. Was it well when you know the Ramones are there? Who else would you want to hang out with? The coolest crew. Yeah, yeah. Television, <laughs> Talking Heads. Uh, um, yeah, Mick Deville. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. You come Alex the... Chilton. Alex Chilton seeing him early on there. You know th- that yeah. was completely revelatory for me. I was good. Um, it's interesting, Jello Biathra. His uh, major was... I saw him at Max's. I saw oh, the yeah? Dead Kennedys at Max's. Went on their first trip. Wow. B-52s at Max's. Yeah. Perubu at Max's. Was it? Oh, yeah. Cleveland. Um, I was going to say, his... Uh, his um, uh, what he went to college for was marketing and advertising. And um, is that... So when you got into journalism, is that when you ended up at the uh, New York Rocker? As an editor? Yeah, I was looking for a job and I had a suit on and I, I'd actually already... <laughs> Just um, the part? <laughs> yeah, no, really. And But I was already writing for them. I sent some clips into Alan oh, Bedrock okay. and, and he... Uh, I, I'd worked at a newspaper at the Jersey Shore writing record reviews and some, some journalism stuff. And uh, they liked what I wrote. So I got to... Right for them. So, I, you know, I'd come in, hang out at the office in, as I was interviewing for other jobs as like proofreader at a law firm, just, you know, things that just seemed really 
grim. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be sitting there in the suit, and they're like, you know what? You'd make a good advertising director. <laughs> and yeah, it was off to the races. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, that well, it panned out. Like, yeah. the, that, that's a way more exciting gig than, I don't know, advertising for something that's uh, like uh, more grim, like what you were saying before. Yeah, and I was telling someone the other day about advertising. You know, I was I was into the idea of like, you know, kind of coming up with ad concepts and stuff. And I'd, I'd done a lot of graphic design layout, you know, for yeah. the yearbook in my high school. But, you know, there I was at a, I think it was like some ad agency, you know, you'd go up there and, and sit in their conference room and the class was taught at the ad agency. Weird. And yeah. they basically, I remember one day they were like, okay, what if, what if Dow Chemical you know, was like recruiting for people on the college campus, but you know, you know, and it's your job to make them seem like a sexy company on the college campus, but you know, they created, you know, Agent Orange. I'm not sure if Dow yeah. Chemical created Agent Orange. I'll just go on record. Here, yeah. But it's a good possibility. Yeah, yeah. Hypothetically. I'm like, wow, that would be, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, you know, weird like moral. The, yeah, yeah. It's one thing to be a lawyer, you know, defending yeah. a client, you know, everyone gets their chance, but to be like hyping someone and trying to put a good face on something that's a little, Questionable. <sighs> yeah, yeah, that definitely, uh, that make that turns the page right quick on that. Cause like, yeah, it just, I just shifted right at that point. That was it. That was the end of it. Now at that time, were you, uh, when you were doing stuff for a, or with a New York rocker is was a band kind of forming around then, or was that? Yeah, that was oh, sort of happening okay. simultaneously. Yeah. It always and, is. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so what was so you've been picking up this nylon guitar? How did it shift from well, <laughs> right? That's kind of what we're well, strumming at this nylon guitar. Yeah, when did yeah. It shift to like electric and being in a band. Well, this, um, again, when I was booking Talking Heads, I was sort of doing it okay. under the auspices of a company Opening. called, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I sort of brought them into the fold of this booking agency that was sort of fledgling booking agency that a friend of mine's uh, brother had started. And when I, you know, I got to town, uh, he's like, hey, my brother started this booking agency and he had <laughs> three bands from Jersey. Was that the Farkas and, Productions? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is that, was that in the box? I, I, how do you know? It? Well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I Farkas. Did, uh, that's why I said Farkas. Yeah, yeah. I did some research, my friend. <laughs> yeah. A guy by the name of Bob Knox, who went on to become Francis Coppola's assist, oh, wow. like, main assistant. He was a brilliant guy that, after Farkas, <laughs> which was not that successful at all, he, he was really good at, he was a, a a guy that would go around to all the, like, you know, one day I'm in a recording studio and he walks in and he was the guy that tweaked everybody's equipment, you know, oh. to make sure like the heads were aligned yeah, yeah. and he would go from studio to studio doing that. Wow. That's a, that's a tough gig. There's, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot involved. It's a fine tuned gig. Yeah. Yeah. Like a piano tuner or something yeah. for, for tape heads and uh, two inch machines. Those are, <laughs> The analog, but, yeah. So he had this. He had this company, and there was a band called Tin Can. Okay. And uh, Rob Norris was a bass player in Tin mm. Can, 
And he had also played in like a later version of the Velvet Underground. So that oh, was kind okay, of like, yeah. whoa. And, and then they, they were playing in this park when I first saw them. And uh, they went into Waiting for the Man. It was like, oh, my God, I'm watching a guy that was in the Velvet Underground play Waiting for the Man. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like, how did I get to this? You know, it just yeah. seemed magical. It was like almost magical. You know, it was like, really? This happened? Like, I'm sitting there playing Velvet Underground records in my dorm room in Rhode Island, just detached from everything. And now here I am, like, in it. you know, hanging out with this guy. Yeah. And and Rob and Frank Giannini, who was the drummer of Tin Can, um, you know, I, I, I just, just sort of liked what, the sound of what they were doing. And um, then I kept running into Rob. I'd go see like James Brown and Rob would be there. I'd see Philip Glass and Rob would be there. And that led to me going out there kind of like saying, Hey, I got these songs. Maybe I could come out and you guys could back me up. I, oh, and I also said, maybe I'll manage you. I had a, I had started, I was attempting to start a management company called Modern World Productions. I guess after, actually after Farkas fell apart, I was still trying to book talking heads under the, <laughs> Modern World Productions uh, <laughs> moniker. Was it some goal, right? It, it seems yeah. like the, the the business end of it and the, like the, the marketing from school and like the kind of getting involved with those people um, booking and working on the outskirts of just playing paid off when uh, you got into bar now. Yeah, you had to kind of just make it, you know, you had to kind of make it up in the beginning. Like, yeah. You know, oh, it's a guy in a suit with a, a Modern Worlds Productions credit uh, business card. <laughs> and he's the guy. I didn't really, I wasn't making any money from any of it. But I was getting to meet, you know, talking heads. And, uh, you know, it gave me a little bit of entree, yeah. I guess. Well, if not, they, you know, why, why would they talk to you? <laughs> yeah. Unless you and that, that's sort of been the that's sort of been the duality of my life. You know, like I've, I've been into making music and writing music, but I've also sort of, uh, you know, enjoyed being around the, 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 the business people, you know, the move, yeah. the movers and shakers, you know? Well, it's a whole different so, mindset and it's a whole different skill set to be able to think about, yeah, a thing that not to like an album as a product and how to push it and where to put it and who fits with that because when you're in it, it's your it's your reality and yeah, um, it's really it's admirable admirable I can't talk today admirable <laughs> that you're able to kind of have this split of focus and being able to front these bands while yeah push it. I mean, you have to sometimes you know it, it's funny you know because I've been running this barring on records for many, many years. And so I work with artists all the time, but then when I have to be the artist, I have to like kind of, you know, pull back a little bit on the, it, it's hard for me to be the business guy for myself. Yeah. You know, I have to kind of like, uh, try to get other, <laughs> get somebody else involved to do some of that. Just cause it, it's just, I don't know. I find it really, that's that's where because when I try to put the business hat on for myself as a musician, there's like a you know all kinds of feedback and yeah, that's and uh, disruption that occurs and you often just like it just leaves you paralyzed. So that's be a weird duality of it because like you're yeah. thinking of 
expressing yourself and emoting yourself, but at the same time, like when you have the business hat on, you're like, well, this isn't the single, or this is the yeah, single. Yeah, or, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, if we do this and put it out at this many blocks, or right, whatever, putting the pressure on yourself to yeah, <laughs> and you don't to come up with the hits. Yeah, where's the hit? <laughs> <laughs> and then then they might lead the nowhere. So that's a super. That's a. I, I think a smart move to have someone else look at yeah, and yeah. Pile I've been I've been uh, I've been very lucky to you know have some people that have jumped into the fray there. But to kind of take a shift back, so. Um, cause I got, I got more questions about bar none, but, um, when, when a band gets going right in it, Peter's way or like, sir, what, when does it become the individuals? Well, a was basically me with the original three members of the bongos. Yeah. Um, the other person being, uh, it was Frank Giannini, Rob Norris and Richard Barone on second guitar. And, um. And Richard really, you know, he, he, he wanted to have, uh, his own band. And, uh, I was definitely sort of the odd man out and I, so, you know, slowly got gently squeezed out of it. Gotcha. Um, you, as they all moved into my apartment and, uh, <laughs> you know, next thing you know, I'm like with my girlfriend in this sort of <laughs> oh, yeah. crummy apartment. I'm like, what the hell happened? Didn't you, you had like uh, a big one, right? You had like a six room or six. Uh, yeah. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice for a band. Um, that's, that's primo. <laughs> it was pretty great. Yeah. They, and they lived there for a long time. Actually the cover of, uh, uh maybe the back cover, uh, what's the record called? The RCA. Anyway, the, the, the RCA album, uh, is a picture of the, the hallway of that's that apartment hallway? building. Yeah, uh, Beat Hotel. Gotcha. Go check the back um, of that. And that's in Hoboken, right? Yeah. Kind of the kind of switch it back. So you're kind of bouncing in between, um, or Hoboken and New York around this time, because. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. Uh, I lived in the, in this in Chelsea for a little while, or yeah, you'd be crashing the city with somebody. Yeah. And. Yeah, I was one of the first people to kind of live in uh, one of the you know first musician types of the of this sort of whatever era to live there, and then Steve Fallon um, suddenly yeah this is while A was still together yeah suddenly a, a friend of mine from high school was living in town she's like you know I just tried to get this waitressing job this place around the corner from your apartment and they want to have bands and I went over and there was Steve Fallon. And um, yeah, he wound up. You know, it just seemed so improbable because yeah. nothing was happening in Hoboken at that point. We would go out to play at the place in Dover, New Jersey, you know, or at practice in Morristown. You know, the idea that <laughs> anything was happening in Hoboken just there was very little happening. The remnants of the band, the Insect Trust from the '60s. I mean, they were gone, but. Some of their friends kind of, you know, played like in apartments and stuff, but there's not a lot going on. And um, the idea that there would be this club right around the corner, again, just sort of seemed magical, you know. And next thing you know, Ace playing there in the front room. And um, that was Maxwell's? That was Maxwell's, yeah. And 
yeah, it was the first band to play there. Again, as I said, that you know, eventually I was sort of uh, quietly removed <laughs> from that band, and I had to put another band together. So you know, got the Village Voice ads going and found. Um, uh, well, there's yeah, there's a little parts of the story, but eventually, <laughs> our, our original drummer John Clett. Uh, John Clett and I first started trying to find other musicians, Dan Janet and John Clages. Actually, Jeffrey Lee Pierce from the Gun Club played with us for a while. Um, and then, you know, eventually, yeah, lineup yeah. congealed. John left. Uh, Doug Weigel came out from the Midwest to audition from uh, Finley, Ohio. Okay. And uh, yeah, he had a record store. He has a record oh, store now. Okay. Yeah, he worked. Yeah, he worked at. Uh, uh, he worked for a, a, a distributor whose name I'm forgetting that that did a lot of like bookways style stuff. Got it. And then uh, also he worked at Columbia, like in special products, uh, for years, hmm. and now has Rocket Number no. Nine Records in Kingston, New York, which is a really fantastic record store up in Kingston where many of the people that were in Hoboken and New York at that time are now living in the, up in that upstate, including Rob Norris. Um, That's all. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. So the individual started, the feelies started, you know, we all really loved the crazy rhythms album and, um, That's a correct. Yeah. One day the feelies sort of showed up at Maxwell's and that was very exciting. And then they kind of, you know, were embraced by the little music thing that was happening. There was just really a few, I was booking bands too. I booked like bands into the front room, like the DBs, the flesh tones, come on the necessaries, nervous wrecks, I think. <clears throat> and eventually Steve took over the, the booking and, um, the individual, yeah, then the individuals made some records. We went down to, uh, Winston Salem, and we made the first album ever recorded at Mitch's Drive-In Studio. And was and that, so? A couple of questions on the studio yeah. itself. It was like an old drive-in that they modded to be like a studio. No, no, was it, was, it was. It was because well, uh, it was funny. We did on our way down there. We stopped at an abandoned uh, drive-in movie theater, and we pulled like a, a, a set of speakers and the post and the cement that was holding it. And put it in the back of the van and drove <laughs> that down to Mitch's drive-in studio. That's awesome. And that's actually pictures of the individuals. Actually, on the cover of our CD reissue, it's that abandoned drive-in movie theater that we're standing at. Gotcha. Um, and we drove down there and gave that as a present to <laughs> the drive uh, Mitch, studio. so you could you could you know you could test the records and drive up his driveway and put the drive-in movie speaker <laughs> in the car. That's awesome. And, but it was basically built in his parents' garage. Oh, okay. The, studio, so the, the initial studio. Drive into it. That makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. Because looking at, I, I read that that the cover of the album was a different drive-in, and like, so I still thought maybe that studio was like at a drive-in, and I was like, that's kind of a great <laughs> idea. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you got like all this room, 
and no one around you and you have one little hub that probably has some remnants of snacks and like (laughs) no one's gonna bother that's a great nice nice fantasy yeah yeah it's a great place and then you can put shows on in the back and (laughs) yeah you could have the cars could you know you could have vans that would be isolation yeah (laughs) rooms we'll put you we'll put your uh, the base put your amp in the the base in the vw microbus No, man, it gets a good tone, I swear. Uh, the whole thing shakes. <laughs> the mic picks it up. Um, okay, that explains a lot. Um, so, okay, so you guys record there, and at the same time, REM is recording their EP at the same... Like, Yeah, uh, so we, we didn't meet them there, I don't okay. think. But uh, we were, you know, we got to listen to, like... Uh, what was that first EP called? That's such a great record with the gargoyle on the cover. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name. Um, of it. <laughs> uh, that that, that may be my favorite REM record. Um, it had gardening at night and uh, you know, a, lot, a lot of really great songs on it. Um, so it was kind of like, well, and they were also, I think the single was being recorded at the same time. None of it had come out yet. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of like, whoa, this is really good. This sounds like. I remember thinking this sounds like love the band love yeah. but with a kind of you know more driving modern cure the cure kind of in the huh. driving beat or something that's a good that's a that's a good twist on it uh, you know was, it, love's a sweet band man and i don't think they get enough yeah time. just that kind of like arpeggio picking that peter did yeah in rem kind of reminded me of, of something by love Anyway, yeah, they immediately then also were completely embraced by the Maxwell CNA. And, you know, they've said things like, wow, you know, we came up and we really felt like we had, we were home, you know, or, you know, you travel all over the world to these kind of clubs that are less than welcoming. And then you get yeah. to Maxwell's and you get a you get free dinner and <laughs> get to hang out with Steve all night. And, um, you know, that's a cool jukebox. It was just like a little, it was a little mecca, you know, to of of uh, the music of the time, and uh, it's like yeah. kind of like uh, going back to how we start. Well, we start well, uh, with the idea of these jazz guys going to France and being appreciated. Like when you find a club where yes, they're yes. gonna pay you, you got a crowd that cares what you're doing, especially yeah. when you're doing something that's brand new at the time. And there's this whole scene that's into it, and you right. get free food. This is great. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But um. Yeah, there's uh, there's a picture of in the uh, "Please to Meet Me" replacements um, box set where I was happy to see Tommy Stinks is wearing this uh, Maxwell's t-shirt there was a design that i did for new york rocker that's awesome uh of kind of like the hudson river and like all the stops on the path train and uh it was kind of a little ad just kind of like saying like hey here's this place you have to you know you have to travel to it but it's like just cool place you know and obviously people were reading articles about bands playing at maxwell's and and it was you know it was incredible like people suddenly one day just Everywhere I looked, everybody I knew was moving to Hoboken. You know, Yola, the Yola Tango guys and the deep, most of the DBs. And I think there were some Ray Beats and Cucumbers and Bongos obviously were there. And uh, it's like, whoa, you know, everyone's showing up. <laughs> 
you know, or, or just leaving wherever they were from and, uh, and you know, come in uh, Walter Salas, Amaris, uh, and the silos came. Uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of that adage, you build it, they come. <laughs> like when you Yeah, it was like that. It the really reservoir. was like that. Yeah, uh, they're gonna come drink from it, especially if it's it's yeah. happening and inspiring. Just like CBGBs, it's like anywhere you can. If it, most of us people, I mean, want to be inspired to do things, and it's way more helpful if you're around people who are. Yeah, um, and you know, I I I think like you know the the, the CBGBs quote unquote stars were about as iconic as you can get, and you yeah. know we were a little more just like suburban kids from all over america kind of you know trying to do it land, land, <laughs> trying to do it and uh yeah the, the, the golden palominos will all be at the bar and, you know sid straw peter blegbat it was incredible oh. it's amazing it's, it's think so about cool it. you know, yeah human switchboard I mean, there were, yeah, it, you know, the, the, the bands alone could fill the place up, let alone. Uh, and probably most of the time they did. <laughs> yeah. And there were also like a bunch of, um, you know, poets and a guy that had a bookstore that lived upstairs. And so there were all these of like Mac? poets and writers. Yeah. Um, the bookstore was yeah. at a different location, but he, uh, he lived upstairs and, um, uh, so yeah, you had a mixture of that. You had school teachers coming in. It was kind of the hangout for all the, uh, you know, the sort of still, you know, quasi underground gay community. Uh, you know, all the all the drug drug takers and cokeheads and alcoholics, and so you had all those. You know, you had all these people all mixing together in there. <laughs> it's either inspiration or future problems <laughs> right a little, a little both yeah. yeah well the balance of everything i guess um so kind of going back to that first recording gene from the beat uh the dbs right he like produced that first ep which became uh, uh yeah he did the first ep that was done in new york okay so that wasn't the first the first album is what was recorded at drive-in and yeah, the re, yeah. uh, the re-release put everything the, together. Yeah, the first okay. EP was on uh, sort of the remnants of what had been Orc Records. Um, it was Infidelity Records, I think, was the title we were on. But Charles Ball, who had been part of Orc, and after Orc fell apart, um, you know, he kept going and put out like the the Bangkok single by Chilton and. Uh, some Lydia Lunch stuff and DNA and nice. uh, Love of Life Orchestra. I think yeah. we were the final uh, huh. record of, of that. Lust on Lust was the name of the label. And he would have these sub fake sub labels for almost every release. So we were on, I think we were on Infidelity Records. <laughs> Inter- I wonder what, what do you think the idea behind that was? Like they have he a, was. He had a lot of concepts. I guess. Okay. Okay. Just a, a concept guy. Is like, I'm gonna start this yeah. vein of a, a real. The, the I'm not quite company. sure what. It, yeah. Maybe he thought he would. You know, suddenly have this um, this large uh, umbrella group of labels. If you know, a few things took off, and could you yeah. know yeah, build yeah. out each sub brand. But it was yeah. It was all under the the lust unlust family of uh, artists. 
It also makes it pretty complicated because you're the first of each one. So it's kind of like starting over. Yeah. But I guess that could be good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, for, well, okay. So when you guys recorded the EP, and I imagine when that first album came out, as far as playing out live, did it take off for the individuals after that EP or after that first record? A little bit. We got like, you know, best EP of the year and or, or not, maybe not number one, but we were, you know, in the... yeah critics polls and were articles in the New York times and, um, in the guy New York wanted to make, what's that? I said in the New York rocker too. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I tried to keep That's the good, New York rocker not yeah. writing about us. Like I, I refuse to let them write about us. Uh, but ultimately actually by, by the end, I think it was Ira, Ira Kaplan's idea to do like a thing about Hoboken. Gotcha. And the bongos and the individuals ended up on a on the cover of New York Rocker. But at that point, awesome. I wasn't actually. I'd already left New York Rocker at that point. But but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> you know, it certainly helps to have have, have friends. That, you for know. sure, for sure. Especially like yeah. when uh, you can't just like like uh, that. Now you can post the thing on Facebook and you know, I mean, spread that that way. Right. Back then, the, the, that's it. Yeah. The zines and the magazines. and Yeah, like, uh, you know, you get like the, the little pics from Bob Criscow in the Village Voice or um, uh, Musician Magazine did a feature. Yeah, the whole the Hoboken thing became a thing then and, you know, everybody wanted to weigh in on it. And so, you you know, you'd be, you, there'd be an article about the bongos and the feelies and uh, the individuals and, and who else was, you know, sort of hanging around the periphery of that. Wow. Oh yeah. Matter magazine moved, moved from Chicago, I think to Hoboken at one wow. point and huh. they were it, publishing from there. <laughs> it's in it, man. Be around what's going on. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, it reached a kind of, tipping point and the town started getting too expensive and everything got renovated yeah. and one by one everyone started drifting away and Williamsburg became a thing and all the graduating classes of art students and music you know musicians all landed in Williamsburg and and, and oddly the first probably the first band that was in Williamsburg was they might be giants who sort of, okay. you know, were the yeah. first bar none band, well, yeah. the second bar none band after my band, Rage to Live. But, you know, they sort of were there before anybody was thinking that was the place to be because it was even cheaper than Hoboken at that point. Yeah. You know, they, they showed up a li little bit later. And they were doing and, uh, the two-man two show, right, with, the, like, the, the tape? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys and, was it? And, and yeah, and, you know, it's at a awesome. certain point they were like the he was like John Flansburg was like the mayor of uh, <laughs> the musical mayor of Williamsburg. <laughs> but so with them being the first like band, like how you said that Bar None put out. But before kind of get into that, I wanted to like ask about so the individual records. Like when I was once that band got together and was in its prime and really hitting it, like. Man, those vocal harmonies you guys do. So coming from someone who just kind of knew some chords and the punk rock mentality, like how your two voices on that record meld together is so like X sounding and so yeah. good. Like I those 
I, I've been spinning ever since I've been talking to Howard about talking to you. I've been spinning that record nonstop. Like those harmonies are so good. And that's not like those harmonies aren't an easy thing just to be able to do, especially if you're just like figuring all this out. So right. I wanted to pick your brain about that. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're not the first person that said that. And it always was very intuitive to me. Um, although we worked hard at it. Like, yeah. we, we did rehearse a lot and, and, and practice trying to figure this stuff out. And I think Janet did, you know, there weren't a lot of role models for a woman in a, in a rock, you know, in, in a rock band singing at yeah. that point. And, I, and, I, and she's definitely, I think, like Lydia Lunch and Xene, um, you know, were definitely influences on her at that time. Awesome. But then I was also listening to, you know, all like I, w- I had heavily dosed myself in the Beach Boys, you know, prior to even being an A. Yeah. And so, you know, that kind of, uh, yeah, I remember being in the studio making the Ridge Live album and the engineer was like, wow, you were using, I can't believe you were using six, you know, stuff. I, I didn't, I didn't know what a six was, but, um, I mean, now I kind of yeah, but you knew what it sounded like, and you knew it. But I knew what it either. sounded yeah. like. I'd, I'd listen, you know. I was just I had sucked up that stuff so thoroughly that it was inside my head. And then, yeah, Janet was always kind of pushing at the, you know, the envelope of uh, trying to figure out what made sense. And then the other, really, the the the, the, the John Clagus, who was the guitar player, had a great voice. <laughs> and was also, you know, reasonably, yeah, he was like musically, I guess, musically trained. And he was the grandson of Enoch Light, who put out a million, okay. you know, oh, yeah. big band. Um, makes sense because some of the yeah. guitar stuff he does is pretty hip. Like it's, I think yeah. it was a can't get started or like there's this part where the guitars just go like all diminish and like tension for a minute and it's just crunchy and like if that was jazz <laughs> well, you would call it hip and like yeah <laughs> well that actually what you're talking about is uh that was yeah that was kind of interesting because uh, that was sort of inspired by Arto Lindsay and knowing that if you just take all your you know if you just hit the guitar with no strings <laughs> and then you clamp down on it anywhere on the neck but you do it in a rhythmic way you know, two people yeah. can follow together. So, you know, it's like, so I was just playing, you know, just clamping the neck, but always going back to that full open thing, which is some sort of weird E chord, I guess. I think it's a, and, um, and then John figured something out that, that worked on top of that. So it was kind of this, you know, sort of naive and sophisticated at the same time. Well, I think part of it, the, the beginner's mind of whatever it is becomes like these little nuggets that you wouldn't do if you were a trained yeah, musician. It's like, like, yeah, anytime anybody had some some kind of, there was some thought out there that I could somehow wrap my head around and, you know, incorporate. Because I really, I just, I really was very limited. I didn't know anything about scales. I couldn't, you know, play a blue scale, you know. I mean, I just, I knew nothing. So, you know, someone shows me like an E minor to uh, uh, hit, the, hit the G note on a, play an E minor and, yeah. and then sort of pump a, uh, the E string on the, G, on the G 
G fret, the third fret, yeah, yeah. you know, and pump cool. that up and down and you get this great chuglin, you know, rhythm. It's like, oh, I'm going to write a song. <laughs> I'm going to write a song using that, you know, just whatever you could, uh, you know, glean from, from your friends in the universe or, you know, okay. Peter Hall's apple showed me the opening chords to, uh, September girls, and, you know, <laughs> how satisfying is that, you know, to play that. Oh, and, it keeps it so f like pure and fresh though. And it, and everything you learn then becomes a thing to express with as opposed to, Oh, that's a one, four, five, six. That's just a progression. Right. You and, and you, and you kind of feel, it all feels very magical, you know, like I'm playing this chord, like, wow, this is really a magical chord. And, you know, years later yeah. <laughs> when I actually learned all, you know, what notes were around the neck of the guitar, it's like, Oh, I was playing an A chord. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that makes because your style from and I, I, I know time's a thing with any musician, right? But your style from the individuals, guitar wise, to cry for help is a completely like A and B thing, and like that. So that kind of explains that a little bit. That you learned all these tricks along the way to get to cry the help. Um, yeah, I try to like you know if you if you like that song, um, uh, watch it burn. You know, I try to get back to that kind of, you know, there's a lot of that again that we we were talking about. We just just whack the guitar, like, <laughs> and I just hit some random notes at the beginning of the of the song. Um, you know, I wanted to get back to that feel, like not lose those things that just sort of you know bubbled up in a naive way yeah at the same time that you know yeah you know scales and the p uh, progressions and whatnot it, after a while yeah it should all be a tool to aid controlling that chaos right yeah so having those pure like just creative moments you should be able to navigate those with some idea of theory so everyone knows what's happening <laughs> but uh um when did so kind of the harp on the X thing, you guys played with X a few times, right? As the individuals? At, at least once. I can't remember. We played with them in North Carolina. Was it? What was that like? I, they, they were at the height of their power. They were in the, you know, they had a tour bus. It must have been, I'm trying to remember what record it was. They were, you know, they were on Electra and... Uh, Hello? Hey. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. That's all right. You want to go back to the Yeah, so question? they were on Electra. Yeah, they were on Electra and I guess we were on a tour and somehow the routing came together. But yeah, they were at the height of their kind of rock star uh, thing. You know, they're playing the bigger headlining the yeah. bigger clubs and Billy Zoom was, you know, just awe inspiring to watch. And kind of almost taking the you know the Ramones thing to this next level, man. Max level, yeah. <laughs> that incorporated rockabilly, yeah. Every you know taking a, a a certain strain of everything that had come before, and just you know he was sort of you know he had that sort of dazzling smile and the and the suits, and then X scene you know was a force, and and John Doe you know again well, again great harmonies, yeah. Uh, and, um, and, they, and I remember we went backstage with our Aquamarine record, and they had, a, I guess they knew Lydia, and they knew that Lydia had been on Lust on Lust. So, like, X okay. was like, oh, look at this. It should, <laughs> you know, John, like, 
oh, but look at this, lost on lost, oh, you know, kind <laughs> nice. of, okay, these guys, you know, kind yeah. of, it's, it's like they were one part suspicious of us and <laughs> one part uh, embracing, I guess. They probably like, we know where you guys are at with this. Like, Yeah, they were probably like, huh, they're kind of copying our harmony thing a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, ah, you, you know, which probably cuts both ways. Yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know. As an artist, I'd be, if anyone followed my mistakes, I'd maybe pity them, but also be like, well, cool. <laughs> I changed their yeah. thought process. But, like, that's me as them. Like, that's, I'm a huge X fan. So, like, hearing that influence and that just kind of, like, sold your stuff, I was like, oh, these guys are so cool. And, like, that's a, so that's really cool that, like, you got to hang out with them and pick their brains a little bit, even if they was like kind of like they're doing their own like uh, this is the big gig and these are openers. Yeah. Like that mentality. Um, was there any other bands that you guys like as individuals got like to like open for and tour with? Um, yeah, uh, we opened for David Johansson, Lena Lovich. Um, it's all escaping me. Now. Yeah. Well, I mean, like it's. I imagine. <laughs> I mean, we we opened like, for we opened for REM. I got to play. Uh, oh, that's for, sick. Uh, I got to play uh, for their EP. There, there she goes again. The Velvet Underground song oh. at the Ritz with them. That was yeah. that was a cool moment. That's awesome. Um, a friend of mine had it that ran when he was in uh, college in Albany. Uh, reminded me the other day that. When we came to Albany to play, and he's like, "Oh, we, we love what you do. We want to find other bands." I'm like, "Call, you know, either Jefferson or Peter Buck, or have Jefferson get you in touch with Peter Buck." And he was like, he, "Peter Buck was like the human role. He said he was like the internet before the internet. You know, he was <laughs> like because they had toured everywhere. You know, they really yeah. aggressively toured." And uh, knew all the bands everywhere. So you know, uh, this this uh, these two guys that actually Craig Marks, who uh, you know was became the editor of Spin, and 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 Jack Isquith, who worked at radio, you know all the all the major label radio departments. It was those two guys that you know, yeah, yeah. We you know this whole thing got sort of built. Like people just passing information around. Yeah, because like to to know that I don't know when you tour and you meet bands, you kind of like you write the and especially if you're doing like um, a position that maybe you would have done like where you're running more than just playing. You're like these guys, this town, I can call them. If they can't play, they're gonna know somebody. And like just having that contact is a huge foot in the door when you're yeah. like this band from. Hoboken trying to play in Austin, you know, and like fill in the blank. So that's that's crazy that event where they went. So that's a that's a huge hook. Yeah, there's, yeah. so there's just endless stories like that. that you know, a whole yeah, it's just how I don't know. I guess it's the way it works. I guess it's the way it yeah. always worked. It's I yeah. We played with Mission of Burma and the Liars oh, up in Boston sick. a bunch. Yeah. Um, who else? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean X Mission of Burma like yeah the, obviously the, the DBs a lot yeah. um, Dream Syndicate in the three o'clock in LA um, 
swimming pool cues. Sick. I think we played yeah, with pi- a love, tra- love tractor pylon probably in uh, oh. uh, down in Athens. Um, so, at one point, kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, you guys uh, are you come in contact or see <clears throat> the replacements, and that kind of changes your mentality, is what I read, and kind of maybe inspired um, Rage to Live a little bit, even though I know you were writing those tunes while in the in the individuals. But uh, Yeah, some of, some of them were written. Uh, yeah, actually, Rage to Live started just sort of as a, you know, a way to kind of, you know, I, I think at a certain point, you know, when you have four people trying to uh, read it, you know, reinvent the wheel, which is yeah. really what that band was about. You know, we're, it's like, it can't be too, you know, it, it's got to have a new fresh sound, you know, you yeah. can't just, can't just be a song, you know, it's got to be this kind of other thing. And to do that and get four people to, you know, keep trying to come up with ideas, a sort of collaborative approach when it, when it works, it's great. But sometimes you just get, you know, it just, you've kind of worked out all the possibilities or something. I don't know. That's the way I look at it now. <laughs> I think Rage Lou was more like, okay, these are songs that maybe are just, they're just, you know, pop songs and they don't work as well with the individuals. So that was sort of the idea yeah. of Rage to Live. Was there an idea, like, it's with Rage to Live and Cry for Help, those two band names are almost like song names. Like, were they kind of like a statement of where you were, kind of, or where did the Rage, Rage to Live was a, a name of a John O'Hara novel, but I was inspired because uh, it might have even been accidental. Jody Harris from the Ray Beats had an album called It Happened One Night, which was a movie title. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, that's kind of cool, like a movie <laughs> title, you know? Like, yeah. And I think there was an ad somewhere, and it almost promoted him as it happened one night, almost maybe by act, you know, maybe yeah, yeah. that wasn't even accurate, <laughs> but that's sort of where I thought, you know, I knew this, this, uh, this kind of, yeah, I just like the idea that kind of over the top, you know, I want it's going to be a passionate record. It definitely know? is, man. That record, or at least blame the victim, which I think now it's compiled like everything. Yeah. That record rocks. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I had I had some great players, really great players on that. Yeah, um, you had a uh, um, Richard from Television. Richard he plays. Lloyd. He plays. Yeah, Richard Lloyd played on a track, but yeah, Ed Tomney was just a phenomenal guitar player. Had been in the Necessaries, um, and uh, also was like a was a became a film composer. Um, you know, if you, you check him on IMDb, yeah. you can see. The things he did, he, he, um, but just, just incredible. Like he just knew how to play. Actually, the first time I went to Max's, like, when I saw Perubu, he was in the opening band, Harry Toledo, and I was just, you know, it was the first time I'd sort of had that kind of experience of seeing any kind of, you know, I guess forward-thinking rock, you know. Yeah. Uh, and 
I had a, I even I made a cassette tape of that and really liked a bunch of the songs he had. And we just became friends over the years. And he had this band, The Necessaries, that actually had Ernie Brooks from The Modern Lovers on bass. Um, uh, for a while, Chris Spedding was playing in the band. And he also had, um, what's his name, the, the incredible uh, 80s uh, artist that... Um, Wait a minute. <laughs> um, who, who's gone on to like you know influence all kinds of people? Um, God. I've got his record right here, Arthur Russell. Gotcha, gotcha, man. And so you know he and they, they were very close. Well, they ended up getting a record deal with Sire at one point, but then it all sort of uh, imploded, and um. And then, you know, yeah, he was looking for something to do and, and got involved with Ridge to Live. And we, we, we'd been writing songs sort of a little bit here and there as well. And Chris Butler from The Waitresses, that was another, that was one of the biggest shows we ever played, the, uh, some outdoor music festival opening for The Waitresses. And you, you did um, some writing with Chris, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the song Enough is Never Enough was actually a song we were writing for Billy Idol. <laughs> And then Chris sort of went off and finished it and didn't use any of the stuff that I'd written, but I kept thinking about that and kind of trying to remember what, you know, his, the you know, I just sort of came up with new music sort of lightly based on, uh, whatever the song, I think it was the song he had called jammed on on and wrote, uh, enough is never enough, which ended up, we actually got a video on MTV with that. So, and, wow! Like, and that was the beginning of Bar None. That was the first okay. record for Bar None. Got, and like, so before kind of diving into that, like the record itself, like it's got this kind of punk feel to it, more so than like the individuals. Like it's got more of a that uh, like the rage part. I feel <laughs> is in that record to some degree. Was that kind of a, a thought too? Or uh, like, or maybe a, just a certain a happy. Well, yeah, like is, of... is this Sweet Judy Blue Eyes is on there, right? Yeah, I think. Well, I, I, yeah, as you say, you got the. Uh, no, that was on the. Yeah, that's on Blade and the Victims. The first story was just Rage to Live, and then oh, okay, okay. When it came okay. out on CD, yeah, it's kind of a combination. Yeah. Uh, it's like we threw. I threw as many tracks as would fit from the first album. Someday, I would like to sort of reconfigure those the way they were initially like the vinyl versions are yeah. the way they really are but yeah like like this the version of sweet judy blue eyes was an attempt to kind of do what the replacements did you know with covers and like wow can you turn this song you know it's kind of an up-tempo song could you turn it into a punk rock song well it's not <laughs> can it go any faster <laughs> yeah yeah that's all. It's, it's interesting to see the opposite too. Like they hear like a, a major tune with like some kind of like bummer lyrics and like slow it down and put it in a minor key. And then those lyrics kind of have a stronger voice. Uh, doing the cover thing like that can be really interesting if like depending yeah. on how the artist twist it. And I think that was a cool twist on your guys's end. Um, even though it wasn't like a, a minor major shift, but um, <clears throat> with getting a video on MTV, like, Making a music video now doesn't like people put stuff on YouTube all the time, not the biggest deal, but then that had to be a huge turning point. 
as far as like for Rage to Live and like I don't you guys didn't play out as much with Rage to Live or No, you know, the I mean the band again, Ed was had a lot of other yeah, irons in the fire. He was just like such a you know, he's just like consummate musician and super creative guy, also a painter. So he had a lot going on. Did um, he do the album cover? And uh no. Okay. Uh, no, that's actually a painting my mom did. No way. Okay, yeah. that ties all back. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Right, exactly. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> that's a painting she did of, of uh, uh, whales being saved. Wow. Uh, the, the beach yeah, whales. Yeah. So like that kind of a, a her own sort of fever dream thinking of you know thinking about like these these beach whales and and the sort of heroic divers coming in and um you know it fits the it fits the band name like it fits it fits the the title at least on the cd the blame the victim yeah but anyway um so yeah so with uh rage live you had some like working musicians and like maybe like to do a band where you go out and tour and play the bars to nobody to meet the six people that come back next time. You have to have a dedicated crew who like is focused on that vision, you know? Yeah. And you know, the individuals were, were that for a few years. It's hard. It's a, and again, I having done this now for many, many years and worked with bands of bar nine, you just realize bands, there's a million ways for bands to crash and burn and there's very narrow paths to actually move forward, you know, beyond a couple of records. And yeah, Bob Riley, our drummer who who has passed away, but um, was a just phenomenal studio drummer. Uh, Again, a long list of credits had got signed to Warner brothers. Um, with his wife Ellie Brown, who also yeah. sang in in Ridge Live, and they they had a band called um, uh, <laughs> it, it'll it'll come to me. Okay. Man, um, the amount being running a record label like you do, and with just as much uh, with as many people as you um, have worked with. Just being able to recall as many people as you can. Like, I have trouble. I'm a teacher. Sometimes I'm like, oh, what's that kid's name? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, that's... It, it definitely, definitely things are crispy around the corners, you know, at this still, point. Just, innate, just even post-gig to remember who booked it is a big deal. Like, so I think this says a lot about you. Um <laughs> In a good in a good way, like I mean that genuinely. Like, well, well, thank you. I, I don't necessarily feel like all the all the brain cells are always intact, but <laughs> but um, so yeah, that makes sense. Why Bar None became like this this thing to focus on and like try to build up, which you guys, which you did, right? So like, yeah, I got married. I got married to the art director of New York Rocker, Elizabeth Van Italy. Okay. And we're married to this day. Um, Congrats. That's awesome. And I, I kind of went to Tom Prendergast, who had started Bar None, and said, you know, I'm sorry you put, you put all that money into the video, but I, I really don't want to go on the road. And, I, yeah. you know, it doesn't seem, I'd have to get a whole, I'd have to get like this other crew of guys, you know, I'd have to find other players. And there were people that wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, but I was just kind of like, and I love this. These are, this is like a, a dream team of musicians. And I just couldn't see myself replacing it. You know, yeah. it's it probably stupid on my part. 
Um, and then oddly, after we got some press and the and the video, then they all came back and wanted to make another <laughs> record. That's that's how blame the victims came together. God, well, it's working. But, yeah, but it's we still didn't really yeah. get out and about that much. Um, so, but like, so I said to Tom, you know, I don't really want to go on the road, but I found this other band. Why don't Why don't you make me your partner, and we'll work to promote try to do something with this band they might be giants and that was the second band on the label <clears throat> and yeah all kinds of things happened we took a year but we suddenly we got them like heavily on in the buzz bin and yes. um, uh, the buzz bin which was you know kind of this way they cranked new artists to kind of get them going and next thing you know, you're just selling, you know, it was yeah. unbelievable. It was like, a, wow. So, it was you like, know, just you couldn't, couldn't press records fast enough. And you know, that whole, that whole kind of story was Bill Ryan, the guy that was pressing. He was like a record. Uh, he was like the third guy, right. With a bar. Uh, Bill Ryan was uh, a member of, um, actually, uh, he, was a partner at Pure Platters, the record store. Tom. Oh, okay. So he, okay. Tom had a, a record store called Pure Platters in Hoboken. Oh, okay. Tom Prendergast. Yeah. And then he decided to start Bar None. And uh, Bill wasn't a partner in Bar None, but he was a partner in the record store. He also used to drive the individuals down to uh -huh. like our gigs in DC. He had yep. a band. And then eventually he, he did the same thing, I think, for Sonic Youth and. Uh, other people as well. Wow, that's a sick gig. Drive yeah. the band because they didn't. <laughs> Do you guys ever do anything with Sonic Youth? <laughs> uh, well, you know, they were certainly. <laughs> actually, <laughs> we tried to. Uh, I tried to get them to open uh, for us when we were having our record release party on this boat, uh, the frying pan out in. Uh, it was this this cool art gallery, the art gallery back again, yeah. right? Yeah, that's it's an art gallery boat uh, out in the Hudson River. That's amazing. And actually that's had amazing. an exhibit I, the the night that we had our, our record release party. Um, they had an exhibit of Larry Clark photos, and Larry Clark was there. I met Larry Clark. Whoa. Yeah, which was yeah. you know wow. way before he, kids and you know all the movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I tried to get, uh, I met Thurston really liked that first EP. He came into, uh, Plexus records who put out our record. He came into the office. They were also a distribution company that distributed stuff overseas. And he was on that, that, that first Sonic Youth record came out on, uh, um, Glenn Bronca's label, neutral records. <laughs> Uh, and you know he'd come in and with a box of records to drop off to be distributed overseas. So I, yeah. I, I got to meet him then, and I was like, "Wow, man, I, I really like this the CP you guys did." It reminded me of like, you know, kind of like maybe like the Dritty column or something. But I'd also yeah. seen Glenn Bronca, and was actually he. The song "Walk by Your House" was sort of inspired. You wouldn't wouldn't really know it, but it's inspired by Glenn Branca has a definite influence on that that song. Um, so I was into that whole idea of you know, 
even if I wasn't doing it myself, just just excited by that, you know, the yeah. ideas of all that kind of harmonic guitar, you know, rising up over the the roaring rhythm playing. <laughs> so I I said, hey, you guys should, uh, you know, so I said, why don't you guys open for us at this record release party we're doing? And Thurston was coming from more of a, you know, the uh, DIY punk world. He's like, yeah, we'll only play if you give us half the money. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, hey man, come on, it's our record release party. It's like, you know, <laughs> we it's like our big payday. What? Come on. So uh, they didn't open for us, and <laughs> that was kind of a little bit of a, you know, yeah, we are we are still friendly to this day. We, yeah, that's about but uh, you know, <laughs> that was a little bit like okay, duly noted. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're right. That that day, like for every band, I know at least, like even with I don't, the record releases, I put like with my group, like that's the one gig we can guarantee it's going to at least be okay. <laughs> like right. this is going to be a good gig. We'll right, hopefully right. be able to pay off some of that CD right. we bought. <laughs> like, but um, they, then to give it half, like for a normal gig, sure. <laughs> but when it's one you put yeah, all this yeah, hype into, yeah. it's a little different. Yeah, in a normal gig, yeah, there probably would have been like you know. <laughs> Maybe you generate two hundred dollars total, yeah, <laughs> and you give the other band, you know, half of it, hopefully, yeah. And, and then the sound, but, but yeah, we were also trying to, you know, quasi survive on, on, you know, being in a band. So yeah, um, you know, I mean, we were everyone was just just so <laughs> so poor. You know, you literally had no money in your pocket, and. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, also, yeah, the flip side of that was, you know, we uh, actually, this is funny. You're talking about bands we opened for. <laughs> we played this place, Haraz, a lot. And um, we opened for The Cure, the first tour they, when they first came to America, like Whoa. promoting, you know, yeah. like the Boys Don't Cry type stuff. That first Cure album that was, I think, sort of a collection of singles, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we opened Sorry. for them and we opened for. Um, a band, the, I think they were called the Skids, who became uh, Big Country later. Oh, no shit. Okay. But th they were originally, I think, called the Skids. And, and these bands would come over from England with so much attitude. And like, yeah. you have to set up your drums in front of ours. And, you know, you just kind of, <laughs> you felt like, like in a way you were getting this leg up, but you yeah. were also being, you know, demeaned. But I remember <laughs> for the Skids... Uh, you know, they were they, their their road manager was just such a jerk to us that we were like, all right, screw this. We when they played, we invited all the music critics into the <laughs> into the back room where there was all this beer, the Skids beer. We just all <laughs> hung out in the back <laughs> drinking the Skids beer rather than uh, watching the Skids. Uh, they. <laughs> <laughs> All the critics got free beer. That might have actually panned out. They might have got really good reviews. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been a two-fold punk rock move. <laughs> Damn. Well, yeah. Coming from their perspective, you know that English punk stuff is tough. Like, if you ever hear stories about the Damned and like everyone gobbing over there, and like the the, the Black Flag stories about going <laughs> to uh to England and playing over there, and how like intense it was. 
<laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, I certainly know the Ramones stories and talk against her. I've sort of forgotten the Black Flag stories, but yeah, I think some of those those are real trials. But you know, Sonic Youth too. That when yeah. they went over there for the first time, I mean, they were, yeah, they they were just barely holding it together with you know, again, not having much money and gear that barely uh, you know functioned and <laughs> hostile crowds and you know. It's, it sounds horrible. <laughs> like, yeah, it would uh, take a long time, you know, to yeah. finally get that sort of foothold for American music in, in England. There was such a machine in England to crank out, you know, pop bands and yeah. just dominate in, in that era, in that kind of new wave era, you know. So kind of thinking of it from the opposite side now. So bar none, um do you guys distribute like how was it distributing overseas and like working that kind of opposite end of that like i mean now you know with with uh with streaming yeah you know you, you have you have worldwide distribution in yeah. a way that's incredible and um but back then yeah you had to you know you had to do licensing you know you prayed you could get a licensing deal with some other label you know overseas like a rough trade or um <laughs> i'm blanking out on the names right now what's that label that bjork bjork was on they, they did and then i think they they bought rough trade at one point and then rough trade bought itself back or something <laughs> like that yeah on the on the end of that even with bands that are like oh we're this band now we're this band now we're this with the word the in front of it so we can still go as that because yeah or yeah we are something usa yeah yeah like the, yeah so on your end with dealing with labels it's going to be like a nightmare trying to trying to get a hold of some of these people there oh we're no longer that we're this with a lowercase blank <laughs> right but um so streaming wise like kind of managing through the years has it been easier and more efficient to uh to uh like it sounds like definitely distribution wise but like i don't know if it would pan out money wise that way with streaming because there's a whole another realm of like it, it doesn't make the same amount of income i guess but or has it been easier like has it been harder or easier now like with with the internet as far as running a label which sounds like a no duh, it has to be easier. You got the guy's email, but like with new forms of like streaming music and like, I can't imagine like the income's the same for the artist and the label. Uh, it depends on the artist and the label, I guess. Gotcha. Um, you know, when, when, when it works, it really works. And when you don't get any traction, um, you know, there's probably a model <clears throat> back in the late nineties you know, when the, the independent world had gotten to a certain point and there were all these big box retailers that would take your records and yeah. you, know, you could easily ship two, 3,000 records without spending too much money and maybe you could break even at that point or you could spend money and ship, you know, 20, 30,000 records if you had. And, and, and there were th you know, NPR played a lot of uh, played a lot of music. You know, we had hit NPR hits first few years. That was a thing. Like the licensing into onto uh, compilation albums was a thing for a few years. You make money that way, but things come and go. And, um, 
yeah, you can't use those old models and expect them to work today. They just don't work anymore. You don't have all the Barnes and Nobles with, you know, yeah. giant CD racks anymore. And, yeah. um, NPR is, you know, covering politics and the collapse of <coughs> ever since the, the economy collapsed back in 08. Yeah. I feel like that, you know, there was a lot less music on NPR. That, well, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. There's more, yeah. uh, more uh, <clears throat> how you said politics are more uh, their jam now. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they're kind of coming around with the tiny desk thing. That's Yeah, like, although uh, tiny desk is also, you know, got Taylor Swift now instead of some, yeah, which is you know, crazy. unsigned band from nowhere, so. Yeah, <laughs> so, good point, yeah, it's now it's now a major stage. Yeah. There's this, <laughs> this even, even, you know, all the AAA radio that you know, you, everyone's wife, you get in there, you know, you got all these aging artists that can't get on, you know, commercial radio anymore. And they're, they're hopping over there, taking up the bandwidth. So, yeah. So, so it, but it, it's always something. And then you get, you know, then suddenly band camp yeah. becomes like a player or we just got a, a feely song in a, in a Gucci movie. <laughs> Uh, that Sick. Gus Van Zant yeah? produced. Yeah. Nice. Congrats. It's like the grand awesome. the grand finale of this seven part Gucci uh, film that was made because of the pandemic. They couldn't yeah. have a regular uh, thing. Ended up using a, a Feely songs in the finale. That's sick. Yeah. <laughs> so I get that. There's always the chance, you know. What? So that's. How do I want to say that? Like, how do you like as a guy? in charge of a fair amount like we're running this how do you like the mentality of always kind of being in flux and accepting new things like that's people i feel like we we find our a rut you know i mean we this works i know it's an a chord i know when i play this it's an a chord and i can play a and then b minor you know what i mean like we find these things that the structure that we can kind of follow but when you're living in this like realm of no structure or the that's constantly changing like, how do you how do you stay hip with it? Like, this <laughs> this say it in the cheesiest way possible. But yeah, you know, I really i if i I mean, I you know, I try to keep evolving as a musician. Yeah, and and I feel like I'll keep um I'll keep going. You know, as long as I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if my my music matters to the world, but I you know, it's something that that excites my brain and. I'll keep as long as I feel like I'm moving it incrementally forward and learning stuff and and uh, getting sort of better at my craft. Um, and you know, I'll never be the the kid who's like wide eyed and just bashing out a bunch of stuff again. But yeah, maybe I can you know learn a little bit more. You know, again, listening to a lot of jazz, I feel like I've gotten um, this. Actually, the the album. I don't know if. You, the new album. I don't know if you've got this track because I I just recorded it. I can send it to you. I can send yeah, you the awesome. the final it. version of it if you, yeah. if you don't have it yet. But there's a song called Whistling Boy that nope, I haven't heard. You yet, know, we so. spent we spent a whole bunch of time making the album, right? Yeah. And and then basically, you know, the pandemic started. It was ready to go. Yeah. And then we just you know kept kind of waiting and waiting and waiting, trying to figure out well, you know what's next and or when can we get back to the way things are well 
I don't know. You know, we yeah. still don't know. So finally, I was like, I got to put this record out. It feels like a very 2020 record. You know, I was reacting to, well, it's very, you know, Trump era record. Yeah. Just kind of <laughs> reacting to that <clears throat> the last four years, I guess. And, um, so, I was like, I got, I got to get this out the door before the end of the year, but I want something new on it. And and I'd kind of, I'd worked on a song that I thought, oh, I'll just have this like acoustic song and I'll put it on the end of the records. Something I wrote over the summer, uh, kind of just thinking about, you know, things quietly, uh, you know, people's consciousness shift and hopefully we're becoming, a, you know, a more open, understanding society, uh, inclusive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote the anyway. Wrote this kind of abstract song about some of those ideas called uh, "Whistling Boy," and I was I called up Rick, the guitar player, and said, "You know, it's hard to really get the band together, but why don't you and I go back in the studio and?" Um, Actually, I thought I was just going to the studio, but then he's like, I want to play on it. That's the real <laughs> Sick. story. Sick. And the two of us uh, went in there with Ray Ketchum, the producer, in, into Ray's studio, The Magic Door, and we were each in our own little private area, and, you know, we wore masks. Yeah, and um, did the thing. And, uh, and basically, you know, Rick had heard, like, a, a little phone recording I made of the song, but other than that, you know, we hadn't done anything with the arrangement or anything and we literally in like three and a half hours came up with an arrangement and the acoustic guitars were gone by the end it's just electric guitars although it was very minimal and it, you know it we had a full track in three and a half hours unlike the rest <laughs> of the record which was painstakingly you know rehearsed and you know kind of tweaked and thought about and you know how do we get this rhythm exactly right it's such a weird. And so it was kind of a, you know, it kind of felt like, wow, I learned something during the pandemic that I was able to <laughs> kind of make this thing, you know. I got some chops now. <laughs> like going, yeah. going into it with a group and being rehearsed is the idea, right? You want to go in and knock it out, but hearing it back after you like grind it out and really get into your own pocket and then having to make that change, it's always kind of like, but I. I made it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's such a weird mindset to like have to s shift it, but you're, you know, that's the first time really, really hearing it back. Um, so the kind of what I was going with, um, prior, like, so with the ability to kind of stay like with the constant changed with, a uh, with running a record label, it's kind of like with your ability to grow as a musician is what I'm hearing. Like this non, this continual, like self-actualization that you're striving for kind of goes hand in hand. Did I misinterpret that or is that, does that sound about right? <laughs> um, with the label? Well, yeah. Cause initially I was asking about the label and was comparing it to music and probably made it more confusing, but like it, but I think it, it makes sense that it would be like the kind of two melded I, together. I do feel like, uh, you know, bar nine has been a, a label that constantly reinvents itself and, you know, if we find something that works, we don't necessarily pick up the next four or five things that sound just like that. We tend to find the next idea that excites us. And sometimes 
you know, <laughs> that turns into a real dead end. And it's hard to kind of build, you know, yeah. uh, an endless amount of touring bands based on that premise. And, um, but I think, you know, if you look at the, the body of work that came under the Barnum banner and the quality, the quality of the releases, um, you know, I think a lot of them really still hold up. And, you oh, know, and sure. again, to go back to that art gallery metaphor, I mean, it, it, did, it did feel like we were, you know, in some ways that sort of was like picking these, these, these works of art to get involved with that, you know, could hang yeah. next to each other. Yeah. I, I've, I've often thought that. that That's that, an amazing, um, that makes so much sense. It's kind of your art gallery. <laughs> it is in a way it is yeah yeah like, it's uh what's what's the word for that um um, um <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I can't think of it i want to say homage oh by the way it. by the way the name of uh bob riley and ellie brown's band was grace pool oh, okay, okay. <laughs> i know it, it would float up to the surface again <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah they put out i think they put out two albums on warner brothers wow that's, with yeah, and the keyboard player was um, also plays on uh, the Glamorous uh, Cry for Help albums. That's amazing. although he wasn't involved with Rage to Live. Yeah, back in the day, Andy Burton, who went on to be uh, uh, John Mayer's. No way. Keyboard player, yeah. as well as playing with Otis Fall and the Chains on Bar None and okay. wow. uh, all sorts of different people over the years. So, kind of like, when did I know? I know you've, Glenn, you've done so much. And, like, I've been very excited. Like, when I was doing my research to talk with you, I've been so stoked because there was so much then to get into. But when Cry for Help came to be, like, Bar None's been a thing for a while. What inspired, like, the the was it just a amount of songs you're like i got enough for a record now was it like learning different stuff on the guitar and like learning how to express I, I was always you know puttering around on the guitar trying to you know i was trying to always figure out a way to get back in the game i, I would you know try to convince various singers to <laughs> either take my songs or, or write songs with me and that never seemed to really pan out the way I, I imagined it would. I mean, yeah. a few, you know, there are a few songs written over the years <laughs> to, you know, shut up on a record here or there. But, you know, I always thought that would be my post band thing that I'd be, you know, writing or co-writing with other people. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhere along the line that, that dream died, but I, I kept, you know, take it. I took a few guitar lessons, a few things finally stuck took a long time before anything really made, you know, the idea of like mixolydian chords made sense <laughs> to me or how to move around the neck playing yeah. them, or, you know. Um, but when Maxwell's, when Todd Abramson decided to close Maxwell's, you know, one of the longest running music venues, I think in the, in the country, yeah. uh, at least in the, in the rock, you know, indie rock era. I mean, it lasted longer than CBGB's or yeah. Max's or the bottom line. <clears throat> when he finally just felt like he just couldn't make a go of it. Um, and he, 
sort of helped him put together a bunch of final shows. Again, Mission of Burma came down one night. There was kind of a, a bunch of bands in this sort of Sonic yeah. Youth camp played one night. Um, but the final night, I said, let's get A back together. Sick. And for the final night. Yeah. And and so then that turned into A and the bongos. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll get the individuals in there too. That's... <laughs> so, wow, you know, man. we got to have this big, it was a big street yeah. thing. And it was this, you know, articles of the New York Times was coming around. All these people, all these newscasters. It was yeah. like the media eye that had been there early on you know came back returned yeah and it was really you know pretty heady giddy experience i have to say i probably you know got almost too into it you know um and but then it was over you know and then and then like two weeks later um uh justin timberlake did a target commercial and they used the empty club <laughs> as the place to shoot the target commercial and there were like uh, <laughs> thousands of people on the streets it totally dwarfed the, the uh, max so was like it gave you a little perspective you know yeah. on like what's what's really uh what a bitter like, happening in pop music <laughs> yeah yeah but, but but out of that suddenly my brain was like you know fired up again like i you know it picks as a learning curve to getting like doing a reunion show and I'd done a few yeah. with the individuals prior to that, but you know, you have, you have some muscle memory and yeah, it doesn't all work together. It takes a while to get back up to speed. <clears throat> and having had that experience, I was like, I don't want to let go of this now. You know, what, what can I do? And I get, I thought of the replacements, like the first th- three guys that say, yes, I'm, I will be, I'll be in a band with them. And uh, Mike back again. Rosenberg right. had worked the door at Maxwell's, and so he didn't have that gig anymore. And uh, he was trying to think of something, you know, what, what's he going to do now? He had worked at a bunch of the major record labels over the years. And so we sat in his kitchen and started, you know, banging out the I, – I, and the songs just started coming like, like a fire hose, as they say. And that hadn't happened to me. You know, I'd always written a little bit, but it was always kind of like, eh, what am I doing this for? Yeah. What's the point? It needs the outlet. Uh, I wrote better song, you know, oh. does the world really need these songs? <laughs> and I finally put all that kind of, or some of that behind me. And it's was like, okay, the first three guys through the door, which is, you know, how after Bob Stinson was booted out of the replacements, that's how they supposedly found the, uh, uh, Slim Dunlap. Yeah, he walked. The first guy that walks in the bar that we know can play guitar, <laughs> he's in the band. So I was just like, the first three people that say yes are going to be in the band, and uh, eventually we ended up, you know, with the lineup that we've had, which is Rick Sherman on guitar, Ron Metz, formerly of uh, Human Switchboard, and many other fine bands uh, on drums, and and Mike Rosenberg on bass. And it's been, you know, it's been a great, and then we found this space that, uh, Chris Butler, actually Chris from the waitresses also played with us for a while. As we were putting the band together, he would sit in on drums and, and one day it's like, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of town. I'm going back to Ohio. Okay. And, and bar none rented, began renting his space from him. And, uh, it's been great. And we had a place to rehearse the band, and, and Barnett had 
a freight elevator for the first time. So he didn't have to like walk nice. boxes of yeah. records up a flight of stairs. And <laughs> That's uh, a big deal. those are heavy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah, now, now we've got two. we're just about to get the second album out by Glenn Morris, Clark Ralph. Well, that's that's an awesome like no better time now. Now that there's time to focus on it and like, but man, that to do the reunion thing right and the the gleam back all that like I was thinking about what you said about muscle memory. Like there's so many things like it, you do that you don't think about. Like uh, my band just had our tenth anniversary and we did a <clears throat> a benefit for the grog shop in the Beachland. I don't know if you've played those venues in your. Uh, that, that, yeah, that's uh, I know about it. That's Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, those are two yeah. like big Cleveland medium venues, right? That's a weird way I just said that, but the yeah, you know, and like um, like X played at the Beachland last time they were they passed through, uh, right? And like uh, but, but anyway, so we were pulling back all these old songs, and it's like, man, I, I my fingers don't remember it. You know what I mean? And like with a group as particular, like the individuals that. The composition that's there, that's just, it seems like it's just naturally there. Like, and I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's purposely put, like, like even like that whole, like, manic guitarist section, you know what I mean? Like, but like little things like that, that had to be a trip to kind of get back into it. But I can see where that would trigger this, like, need to do more. And like, that's amazing that this outlet came. So with this second album, how has it changed from that first one? So the first one seemed to be like a reaction to just this amazing like memorial, this amazing cap for Maxwell's like, like to get everyone back together and to do this thing and have all this hype around it. And then like, and then have this bittersweet twist right quick, but then to have this outlet, right. And put together the first uh, cry for help record. What's like, what's been like this, approaching the second one is it still kind of living off this hype and like leftover songs i mean clearly no it's more like well the first album was more uh actually also at the same time that the maxwell things was happening i finally i've been wanting to go to memphis for like you know 30 plus years so i was finally yeah. like, i'm going to memphis <laughs> did you go to and, like, crossroads uh, and stuff yeah, I, you know, I did a bunch of stuff. I got to go to Arden Records and Bob Bob Mare, who wrote the Replacements book, took yeah. me around to a bunch of places. Beale um, Street. Um, yeah, Beale. Yeah, you know, I did it all. Yeah, you know, did all the, all that stuff and met uh, Cecilia Chilton, Alex Chilton's sister, and um, but that sort of got me back into the blues too, like yeah. rethinking the blues a little bit and. But, and again, with like Spotify, you know, we can hear 40 versions of a song, you know, like every version of Karina, Karina or uh, <laughs> Hoochie Coochie Man uh, or. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, you hear the psychedelic garage rock version, the country blues version, you know, the Chicago electric blues version. The the British folk. Invasion. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that just got me back in touch with that. Plus also just like. Yeah, songs really are kind of one four five. If even yeah. even the individuals probably were doing one four five, even if we didn't know we were doing one four five. And uh, <coughs> so, just sort of maybe, yeah, just it, that that first record is just sort of about song craft and trying to write really good songs that were kind of grounded in in kind of blues roots, but also you know trying to make them as expansive as they possibly 
could be within that context and have, you know, power pop and yeah. Beatles and big star. And I don't, I don't, what, I don't even know. Was it well um, with cry for help? But, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say the second record was more like, huh, can we move a little bit forward into some of our, you know, that kind of ended with the band walking into CBGBs, I guess. And yeah, this one's more like, yeah, a band that walked into CBGBs and, and made some stuff. And, um, and then maybe there's, like I said, the song whistling boys even feels a little bit like a way forward, uh, even beyond all that. So, um, it's like, it, it's certainly an angrier record. It was certainly a record that we re- reacted to the last four years. And, yeah. uh, um, yeah, a little punkier, I guess. Sick. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. With, with, I was going to say with Cry for Help, Cry, Cry for Help, like the harmonies are still a thing, man. Like the, the composition of the whole thing is still there. Like it, it, as far as like coming from like um, Rage to Live and um, individuals, like whatever project you get into, there's this. And I, I'm gonna guess it's a major, just how you hear things, but there's this this compositional thing that is Glenn on any like any recording that you've touched. So I'm I'm super. I didn't get any of the of the stuff for the second one yet. So I'm super excited to hear that new track and um, and what else is uh, maybe Howard has yet to send me. <laughs> wait, so you, wait, wait, you well, you must have gotten the second record, right? No, just not the. I did. You're just talking about. The, I'm talking about the the first one that like um, I was able to find off the internet. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh wow. Like, okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, well, then, I did a, yeah, lot you... of, a lot of YouTube man, and a lot of watching a lot of the live cuts. Oh, that's funny. Of, yeah. There's uh, a few. I mean, a few stray singles are, are up already, but. Um, okay. Then I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll I'll send that to you when we get off the phone. Do yeah, I have you? Yeah. Do you have my email? I'll text you. I'll text you it. Okay. Um, but. I'm super excited to hear it, like, because your your musical journey just—I love how it keeps moving forward to whatever, wherever outlet you're putting it in. It's taking all these. <laughs> yeah, that it you feels have. a little, you know, a little bit forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and <laughs> it sounds like you're on a on a similar journey. I, With what? What was your band? I play in a band called C Level, letter C dash, and I know there's an S E A level. I didn't figure that out till <laughs> right, chunk right. of the way in, and um, and I'm like I'm kind of in the in a weird spot, like we're trying to figure out the whole marketing end of it, and like not just be the the uh, fronting on writing all these tunes and trying to think in two different ways. And when right. I come across someone like you. Or uh, someone like Ian McKay, or someone who's taken that like that uh, that mindset. Like to me, that's super inspiring. Because one, wow, they're still coming out with cool shit. Like the music still holds, and they're able to <laughs> they're able to tell people about it in a way where I think they're eating well. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I've been really lucky, and it's been uh, you know, bar nine. I mean, there's certainly some dark times at bar nine, but yeah. Um, it's gotten me to the, you know, to, to the, the later years of my life. And yeah, yeah, I don't know what, where it all goes from here, but, um, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel very grateful that just, you know, uh, get get here. Yeah. 
That's incredible, man. And like, and it's still going. And it's it, it's amazing that the kind of the kind of cap it because we've been talking for a minute. And I really appreciate your time. And I've been really looking forward to uh, chatting with you for a while. Um, but going from this art gallery and sharing this like these passions with people and like seeing that with your mother and then in your own way doing it with music and like still being able to express and like it's an amazing it's an amazing place to be and like i'm super stoked that like you're still doing it and there's more and like people are still finding out about these bands like they hear the feelies and a gucci film is fucking like that's incredible and like i know i know it's like that blows my mind you know like the feelies are like the face of gucci you know (laughs) when you see this film that's awesome and ironically the same day uh that that happened and i'm thinking wow this is like this 40 plus year old song and it's and yet it still feels fresh and and you know kind of timely that they they would use it in this way but someone sent me this video of uh, a documentary that was made about brian eno uh like a little 20 minute documentary about him making his first album and it the whole look of it was so much like the the gucci look yeah like you know this kind of like uh it fit (laughs) yeah it was kind of very you know very yeah it was like oh my god and the feelies kind of picked up on you know eno's thing yeah and 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 incorporated that into the kind of cbgb's ramones television thing and and you know made that first album yeah so it's like wow crazy rhythms maybe that's a but but like you know his friends kind of walking around england in 1973 looked very much like what this the uh the the, these uh gucci you know the 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 actors in this gucci thing it's just sort of like people wandering around in gucci clothes yeah and and wandering around paris but it it almost had the same feel it's it's interesting like what uh you kind of noted it earlier like how younger generations are digging into older, older music and like how much this holds up and how much this recycles. And there's something, I think that says something about the art and something about the passion and that those artists and musicians had that it's always going to be, it's going to be timeless to some degree. And that's going to keep inspiring because there's, when someone's truly inspiring, it doesn't matter the generation they're from. Yeah, you know, people still pull quotes from Lincoln, and like, people still pull quotes from MLK, and like, all these uh, it, inspiration is timeless. And like, to be a guy that's curating some of it is amazing. And like, <laughs> yeah, well, Joey Ramone will always yeah. be, you know, the, the the guy that made those first four records. The Ramones that made those first four records exist, you know, across time. You know, they. Man, what you, yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of art, I guess, right? That you can, uh, yeah, traverse time or something with with the with the stuff that really holds up. It just keeps going. Well said, man. Joey had to be a character because I know he had all his quirks with a uh, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, and like uh, in the see just to see those two. I've been on a huge Ramones kick <laughs> lately, and the concept of like this conservative, like pretty like 
well thought out planned guy <laughs> with Joey who's this like kind of loose cannon guy going through his own thing like to see that unfold and be able to see them play as a band had to be incredible like these yeah, it, it is it is so sad you know they that they're all gone and yeah they did you know they probably you know there was a certain amount of like psychological dysfunction in there that you know, it's, it's kind of tragic in some ways, you know, that I don't think people were maybe looking out for their best interests and, you know, whatever. Yeah. They, it, it's, uh, I mean, great art got made and they were a wild crew, you know, but, yeah. uh, yeah, I wish, I wish they were still with us, you know? Definitely. Like it, on, on the, what's the, that Ramones doc that came out a while ago. I don't know. I've been watching that. I've been on just this, I, every like umpteen years, I get a huge Ramones kick and I get to the end of the discography and get to the Joey solo album. And I'm like, there's just this, this bummer afterwards <laughs> that none of them are around. And like, yeah. And it, there's something so pure about, about, I know this is a total rant randomly at the end about the Ramones, but about what they do and like, but the, 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 I've never really gotten to talk to anyone who knew them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I knew him. I knew uh, Tommy a little bit just yeah. from, because uh, he, you know, when he produced the first replacements record, I was working at, uh, in, the, in the A&R department a little bit at Warner Brothers listening to tapes. And yeah. uh, so he was around and, you know, I'd run into him various places. And, and he- actually, and, and Tommy, um, uh, from the necessaries who we were talking about, who was enraged to live. Yeah. Was he, he was always just like, Oh, Tommy, man, that guy like really knew, you know, how to just come up with amazing, uh, like engineering ideas. And, um, you know, and we talked about how, like, instead of using a kick drum, just like tapping on a mic, huh. you know, Tommy yeah. would do things like that. And, um, he was, he was just like, that guy really, you know, and Tommy, you know, he, he, he was the producer pretty much of the first four albums. Yeah. So. And that's why he stepped down to do like after they yeah. relentlessly toured and like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and those guys, they would, you know, the Ramones, a, a, a woman I know worked for their management company. She said, you know, they would drive to Pittsburgh for a gig and drive home because they didn't want to pay for hotel rooms. Huh. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that, that yeah. really, you know, wears you out, you know, for sure. Like, and they'd be, like, and they wouldn't be talking to, you know, they were all hating each other when yeah. talk to each other in the van. <laughs> that's a stressful life. Especially that's a nine hour, that's a nine hour solitude of yeah. silence back home. Oh. They'll only get home probably the next day. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. Wow, man. I did the drive from D.C. to New York, and yeah. you know that was always kind of brutal, and the sun would be coming up, and but yeah, I can't imagine doing it from Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's, that's a couple more hours. Um, with um, cry for help. I mean, definitely now is not the time. But did you guys eventually? Did you spread out? Do some uh, out of state dates or ten dollars? Well, we we. <laughs> We did New York and we did Jersey, but we we got all over both. You know, we played a lot of different places, and it was kind of surprising. And the gigs just kept, you know, people kept saying, "Hey, come play here," and you know, that's sick. Um, so, and then we and we ran into all these people that you know we had known over the yeah. years, and uh, and everybody else now is forming band. You know, until the pandemic, it was this whole you know 
it was like a thing to do. Okay, the kids are out of the house. Let's start a band. <laughs> Let's get the band fired up again. Awesome. You know, that definitely became a th- is like a thing. You know, yeah. Wow. And That's what does it all mean? I don't know. It's <laughs> it's it's just a you know, it's a pleasure to see old friends and uh, make get the adrenaline flowing and and you know beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't imagine like that passion fades, especially when you're coming out of the punk rock days when everything's like so much of that is that and it's driving that. And with that, Glenn, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate, we've been talking for a minute and uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Yeah, (laughs) it's more than a minute. Oh my God. Did you hear the whistling boy They say that he's around Somewhere where the troubles came To the other side of town They say he sends his song out To the birds up in the trees The whistling boy If you hear the whistling boy, there's no turning back. You must decide what side you're on before the first attack. He's whistling at your window as the sun is going down. The whistling boy. Message on the breeze, send the birds in the trees. Hey, Mr. Now, please. Didn't seem too worried His hands were by his side When they put him in an unmarked car And took him for a ride The sirens sound around the town But the only sound I hear Is whistling Some say the whistling boy must have got away Some say he's finished, they had to make him pay But I don't think the whistling boy was just passing through now 